Lord, I just want to ask that you you bless our time together tonight, that you give us all a, a heart for studying your word. And I hope that through the teaching that I'm able to give tonight, that everybody, including myself, just get a, a fire started in, inside of us to just dive back into your word and dedicate ourselves more to you. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Yes. Yesterday, actually. Thank you all very much for your for all of your prayers. They're definitely answered prayers, and so it's very much appreciated. And glory to God for that one. Okay, so we'll go ahead and dive into this. So who should study their Bibles? Of course, everybody should study their Bibles. So what, what do we all do when we study our Bible? What do you guys do? <laughs> Bible roulette. It's good, Nate. So, you know, most of us, we, we read our Bible and we pray. And, and for a lot of people, that's kind of about as far as we go. And obviously, those are indispensable things for us to do, that we should pray and we should be studying our Bible. But we want to go deeper than that and not just superficially read through the Bible. And so beyond that, a lot of people will use their concordance in the back of their Bible or maybe you have a Strong's concordance and you study a little bit deeper through that and occasionally maybe read some commentaries and those sort of things. Those are all great tools. But uh, what we're talking about tonight is inductive Bible study, which is going to be a method that you can use just when you're reading the Bible. You can take what we learn and go through tonight and apply that as you're reading. It'll get you thinking in an inductive study way. Excuse me, inductive study way. And at the same time, it's going to be something if you really want to dive into some scripture and really mine it for you know those nuggets of wisdom that God gives us, this is a great tool to do that. So, one of the you know the different methods. If you want to turn to page seven in the little handout. There's three different methods that are looked at that people commonly use to study the Bible. And so you have the inductive, deductive, and springboard methods. With the springboard method, that method of studying the Bible basically shares an opinion or tries to sell an idea. And you know, they might see that with the prosperity gospel, that they have an idea that they're trying to get you to understand if you give money to the church then you're going to get money yourself, which we all know isn't necessarily the truth. It may happen for some people, it may not. We don't know what God's will is on a daily basis. But that's what the springboard method does. It shares an opinion or sells an idea. And then the deductive method is to work out a truth through things that are already known. And it starts with a premise. So we might have an idea about something, and so we'll go to Scripture to see if we can find all the other clues that point towards the premise that we already have to prove what our premise is. And that tends to really follow opinion and try and express your opinion about something. And the difference with inductive Bible study is that we look at the information that we read and we come to a conclusion by what's presented to us from the Bible. So we're not interjecting our opinions or any thoughts or any ideas that we're trying to sell to people, so to speak. We're just letting the scripture speak for itself. And so the next tool, tools that we'll look at there will be the 
what we call OIA. It's it's observation, interpretation, and application. And if you want to turn to page 8, we'll start looking a little bit at the observation part. So in observation, we want to look at what does the text say? And we literally just want to look at only the facts. What does it say? The who, the what, when, where, um, important ideas and things like that. We don't want to interject our opinions into that. So when we read through, we're going to read the text that we're looking at several times. One time you might just read through it, just read it like you're reading a book, and then go back and read it again and start to look for key words or ideas that are being expressed in the text that we're reading. And then picking out the who, what, when, where. And we always want to record our first impressions. So as you read through it, start writing down what you're getting out of the scripture that's coming to you. Because we may read something today and then go back and study the same scripture a year later. And we'll get something completely different out of it. That's because God's going to speak to us in different ways at different times. That he knows what we need to get out of the scripture on a daily basis as we're reading So it's important that we focus on what the Holy Spirit's trying to push us to understand from the Scripture each time. Not just look at something and say, oh, I've read that story, I know that. Just kind of casually read it and then move on. You're going to be missing so much that God's trying to tell us. Not have that bounce off of me. Is that okay? Okay. And so in, in that, you just kind of... Like I said, just look at the facts. That's the main thing that we're looking at. And so we'll go ahead and move on to the page nine. And then obviously, the, the page numbers, there's not that many pages in this handout. There's a lot of information that's just filler in the handout, so I didn't give that all to you. So next is interpretation. And the interpretation is where we really start diving into the Bible. We're looking at what does the text or our observation mean. So as we're studying, we're going to, write down notes of what our observations are, and then we're going to try and interpret those points, those words and key phrases and ideas that we've found and interpret what exactly is God trying to say to us, what is being expressed by the person that wrote that down and experienced it, and what are they trying to express to the people who are hearing it at that time, and then what's that text trying to say to us today? And so... The first thing we want to do is we want to interpret literally and interpret biblically. So as you go through and interpret something, if it says something very plainly that makes sense in a literal sense, that's the sense you should look for. You shouldn't continue to look for something beyond something that's very clear. Um, Then you also want to study in context. So when we say study in context, what, what do you think we're talking about? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so there's a, a rule that's a very flexible rule. But if you read 10 verses before and 10 verses after, you can generally get an idea of what's going on that doesn't always apply. If there's some, if you're reading a parable, obviously reading before, it's not going to help you because it doesn't relate to the parable necessarily. But in general, you want to read, you know, 
10 verses before, maybe it might even be a whole chapter before, to get a context of where the, where the person that's writing is located at, what the history of that area is, who they're talking to, what their culture might be like, to be able to understand what exactly is being expressed by the text. And a good example of taking text out of context would be, um, Mercedes and I were talking about it this week, that people say, you know, where two or more are gathered in my name, I am there, and they use that to say that we should pray in groups, which if you read the context of that, it has nothing to do with getting together with, in prayer. It has to do with you know, holding people accountable within the church that if somebody's doing something wrong, and as Christians we know it, and two or more people of, of good mind have come together to say that that is wrong, God's there with them judging that person to correct them. So it's, you know, things like that can be taken out of context very easily. That's why we have to study in context. Next, we want to let the scripture interpret the scripture. And so when we let scripture interpret scripture, what that means is your Bible is its own dictionary. So you can go through and you can look at, look at a word in the Bible. And if you want to know what exactly that word means, you can go look up that word somewhere else and see how it's used in different places and different applications so you get a, a deeper meaning of the word. Um, as, as we go through observations, sometimes you're reading something and if it's an epistle and Paul might be saying, you know, I, Paul, a bondservant of Christ. It's really easy to just skip over that and not think much more of it. Okay, so bondservant of Christ, yeah, we get that. You serve the Lord, great. But if we actually look at that, and we're all called to be servants of the Lord, and you look at what a bondservant is, and you go and you read that in other texts, you'll see that a bondservant is somebody that had been a servant of their master, usually to pay off a debt, and the jubilee would come in seven years, and that person is set free. But the person feels, this master was so good that I want to continue to be his servant, and I want to dedicate my life to helping him and stay under his care, and you'd be taken out and have a, a nail pierced through your ear and marking you as a bondservant, and then your, your whole life will be dedicated now to that person. And that's what we're supposed to be called to do, to be bondservants of Christ, that we should all dedicate our entire lives to Christ. And so words like that, if you just pass over them, it's easy to not get a deeper meaning out of it. And then... New Testament will take precedence over Old Testament. So if you come to Scripture where you find a phrase or um, some sort of a teaching, and it's in the Old Testament and it teaches it one way, and in the New Testament that changes, we always want to take the New Testament as the precedent over that because we're living under grace. We're not living under the law now, so we want to look at the, the New Testament. And then on the very end, you, might, you want to write this one in as number five, is no opinions. Because what is our opinion worth when it comes to the Bible? Absolutely nothing. Our, our opinion has no value. And Pastor Drew, when he's teaching this course, he, he tells a little story. And he says that when he's out of the country and teaching pastors inductive Bible study in other countries, he'll actually do what I'm going to tell the story of. And so he'll have a glass of water and ask if, you know, if I offer you this glass of water, you'll drink it. Of course, it's, you know, great, wonderful water. It's nice, clean, no problem. 
Now imagine that you're at a house that has plumbing that empties to outside, but there's, it goes just into the street. And then water gets dumped through that, and all of your, your waste from your house, all that goes through and just gets dumped outside your house, and it starts creating a little pool, and the sun comes out, and it starts to fester, and it's just absolutely disgusting. Now I go and I scoop up a, a glass of that. I ask you if you're thirsty, would you like to drink this? Who's going to drink that? It's, it's absolutely disgusting. So if I take, and I have the two glasses, and I ask you to choose, you're obviously going to choose a clean water. And if I take a little eyedropper, and I pull out just a little bit of one, and I drop it into the clean water, and say, okay, well, will you drink this now? Now you won't drink it, of course not, because you know how horrible that is, and that's contaminating what's already pure. And so that's what our opinions do to the scripture. If we start interjecting our opinions, even if it's just a little bit, then it starts to contaminate that and make it to where it's not the pure scripture and it can really lead people and lead ourselves in the wrong direction. So that's really important that we do not do that. And then application, which we'll get into later. Those are the three of those. So the written forms of the Bible, there's narratives, which basically in a narrative, it's just that. It narrates a message to us. It just gives us a message in a straightforward form. An epistle, everybody knows what an epistle is, I would hope. It's just simply put, a letter. And then the parables. What is a parable? I just turned the page to the next page. It should say written forms of the Bible at the top of the page. No? Gotcha. Further further guidelines to interpretation. Sorry about that. That was me. I flipped my... I came to the end of my notes page. and I I moved on to the next page without moving you guys on. So further guidelines to interpretation. So here are some basic rules for interpretation. You have... uh, The first one, interpret your experience by the scriptures and not the scriptures by by your experience. So if we interpret scripture by our experience, what happens is our experience becomes the standard. And obviously God's word is a standard and our lives are under the authority of the Holy Spirit. So we always want to be careful not to do that. An example of something where you would do that, where it might happen, is say there was a man who had difficulty with deficit spending. So he'd spend all his money on credit. He'd had too many problems with that. And the way he got out of debt and got himself out of that was he abolished all credit spending in his life and all buying on time. And then he thought it was right to start making other people live by that same standard because it worked so well for him. And he would use scripture to back it up by saying, um, owe no one anything, which is in uh, Romans 13 between uh, verses six and eight. So, I'm going to go ahead and read. I actually have the New King King James Version here, but in Romans 13, 6 through 8, if you want to turn there. It says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for there God's ministers attending continually to this very thing, render therefore to all their due, 
Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor, and owe no, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another fulfills the law. So what this scripture is talking about is submitting to the governing authorities. That all the governing authorities are put in place by God, and so we should submit to them, and through that we should pay our taxes and, and not owe people things. It, it doesn't say you can't have debt or that... It doesn't say you should have or shouldn't have. It doesn't really talk about that at all. That's not what that scripture is talking about. So if you take that and you let your experience of somebody who was able to correct their debt spending by using that, it doesn't make that right to use that to impose upon someone else because that's not a biblical statement for what that scripture is. And what God does to work in the lives of one isn't necessarily what he's going to do to work in the lives of another. So it's, we all have our own personal experience and our personal relationship with God and Jesus Christ and, and the Holy Spirit working in us. And we all need to, to honor that and kind of submit to them, all, you know, all three of the deity. We also do not want to be dogmatic where scriptures are not dogmatic. That's to say that we don't want to make something doctrine that's not doctrine in the Bible. Uh, We don't want to take things and make issues like personal experience, style of dress, your standard of living, uh, church government, or anything like that. Those aren't things that are expressed in the Bible that they have to be a specific way. They're things that we all kind of interpret in our own way to think what is best. And what's important is we don't be critical of those who accept a different view than we do on those. Again, if the Bible's not dogmatic on it, we shouldn't be dogmatic on it. Then next, we want to determine when a passage is figurative rather than literal. Um, You want to consider it figurative when the Bible says it's figurative. And then occasionally there may be some events or situations where places might be literal as well as figurative. Um, For an example of that would be in Galatians 4. On Mount Sinai, it's a symbol of bondage, and Jerusalem is a symbol of grace, while at the same time, both of those are still literal places. In that particular scripture, they're, they're using them in a figurative sense. We want to consider figurative if the statement is out of character as well. For example, uh, when an inanimate object is used to describe something animate, uh, there's several examples of that. Uh, for example, in John, G- Jesus is described as a door, the bread, the water, and obviously Jesus isn't a door, literally. It's a figurative sense of it's the way that you know he's the door for us to go through to get to heaven. In Philippians 3.2, it states, look out for the dogs. And the dogs, he's referring to heretics. And Luke 13.32 says, go and tell that fox. And he's not talking about a literal fox. He's talking about Herod in that, that particular text. And then scripture is not going to be figurative and literal at the same time. Uh, If you're given a figurative meaning, then it supersedes the literal meaning. And if the literal interpretation fits best, then it's what should be used unless context makes it impossible. So even though, you know, for example, the Mount Sinai being the symbol of bondage and Jerusalem, the symbol of grace, even though they are real places, 
That text isn't talking about them as real places. It's only talking about them in a figurative sense for that text. Next, we, we don't want to rationalize scriptures. Uh, we never want to attempt to interpret scripture by current philosophies or contemporary science theories. That These are thoughts that change over time, and the Bible, of course, is eternal. It's non-changing. It's going to be correct and pure from the beginning, and it will always stay the same. Um, an example of you know that happening is there in the past you know many many years ago uh, decades or centuries ago even um, there was discrediting of the Bible because there was no archaeological evidence for the Hittite nation. They said you know we can't find anything archaeologically, so that means that the Bible must be wrong because they talk about this Hittite nation and there's no proof of it. So obviously the Bible must be wrong. And then. What do you know? In 1907, they discovered tablets in Turkey, which confirmed the existence of the Hittite nation and the location of where they were. So that's an example. If you try to rationalize scripture by the current day's theories or scientific knowledge or understanding, those things change. They find more information. They find new scientific theories. They find out that old ones were wrong. And the scripture is always something that's going to be right and correct all the time. And we don't want to apologize for biblical statements that science can't confirm or to interpret scripture in the face of current scientific evidence. We want to remember that the Bible is a word of God and it's literally true. And every miracle and every statement in it are to be looked at as true because they are. And next, we don't want to spiritualize scriptures either. That not everything in every verse has a spiritual meaning. An example of that would be, we all know the story of the hundred sheep and one sheep goes and gets lost and the shepherd goes, he finds the one sheep and brings him back and is rejoicing that he's found his one lost sheep. And we all know that that story is about the one sheep and that everything in that story points to that one sheep who is lost. And then the 99 sheep, in that story, they're just sheep. They don't have a deeper meaning of anything else. They're just 99 sheep so that you can see that one was lost and brought back and found. And so we want to make sure that we don't try to give spiritual meaning to things that the stories in the Bible are pointing to and giving spiritual meaning. We don't want to give our opinion of what we think it might be. Just let the scripture speak for itself and focus on what it's pointing to. Um, another example would be in Acts 28. Paul is miraculously healed after being bitten by a poisonous snake. And so we could spiritualize that scripture by saying that the devil always attacks righteous people and is always defeated. And though that is true, it would be a misrepresentation of what they're talking about in Acts 28, and thus it'd be improper handling of the word. So we don't want to spiritualize those things. And then, let's see if I get through all those. Flip my pages over here. And now with application. With application, we want to focus on the first five of these. You want to go ahead and, if you're taking notes here, on the there's six things listed. You want to put one through five on the first five and then draw a line between the fifth and the sixth one. So when we do our observation, we're going to find those 
those keywords and phrases, and we're going to find the ideas that stand out, and then we're going to do interpretation of what all of those things mean that point back to our observation. And then when we do application, we want our application not to point to the interpretation, but to point back to our observation, because we want to look at how we can apply that specific scripture, not the overall understanding of it, but that specific scripture to our lives. So the first five you want to look at, Whatever you're studying, is that an example to follow? Is it a sin to forsake, an error to avoid, a promise to believe, or a command to obey? And these may be different for different people. Um, you may have things that you read and you see it and you realize that for, for you it might be an error to avoid. For somebody else it might be a sin to forsake, that they are committing a sin and didn't realize and now they, they need to forsake that sin and turn from it. And so we don't have, we don't want to look at this as something that is to be applied to every other person. It's we want to look how it's to be applied to us and in our lives. And then the last part on that is actions to take. So the actions to take is really the hard part of this because it's really easy to come up with, you know, okay, I need to pray more or I need to study the Bible more, or there's lots of things we can come up with in application. But what you need to do is to be very specific about what the application needs to be. And why do you think that might be? If we're not specific, we're not going to do it. It's easy to just let it go. You say to yourself, yeah, I'm going to pray more. Okay, maybe I will, maybe I won't. But if you say, I need to pray for... Pastor Bill and Eric, because they're in Cambodia, they're going through spiritual warfare, I need to focus on praying for them this week. That you'll do, because you know what you have to do. You've written yourself a specific plan to do, and it's easy to follow. And so when you, you go through and you come up with how to apply these things and what action to take, that's really the hard part, because you start. it's really easy to keep generalizing what you're going to do. And then go to the next one. So the next few pages, uh, two pages, are kind of a personal Bible study chart. And it kind of gives an idea of it's broken down into different sections. So it has in the first column for narratives, the second column for epistles, and the third column for Poetic writing, parables, prophetic revelation, and then how they give examples of it, then kind of what things to look for with each of those in our observation, and then what to do with interpretation on those and application, kind of how to look at those. Those, I'll I'll let you guys kind of go through. It's basically the same information that we were just speaking about, so I'm not going to go over all of that right now. What now I'm going to go to is page 15, kind of 15 and 16 a little bit. So 15, it says assignment. So it's I'm not going to give you guys homework on this necessarily. And if you want to go home and continue to study it throughout the week, and we'll talk about it some more next week, that's great. But what we're going to do is kind of go through this tonight and answer some questions that come up and and kind of get an idea of the starting of 
what we're looking for when we're doing inductive Bible study. So it says here, read through the text several times. Right now, we'll just I'll go ahead and read through it once. And then we want to take our time as we read it and try not to read it too quickly so you can kind of absorb it and take it in and observe carefully. And then we're going to answer the questions that are following that. So we're going to Mark 2, 1 through 12. And it's on this sheet if you want to look at that one so that we're all using the same text. And one of the things when we were studying, he made us use the scripture in the copies that he gave us versus in our Bibles because later we're going to have to go through and break them up into sections of what each part of a particular epistle or, or narrative may say. And he didn't want us to use our Bibles to kind of cheat because in Bibles they can already break them up in little sections for you. And so <laughs> wouldn't let us cheat doing that. So uh, I'll go ahead and read Mark 2, 1 through 12. And it should be a text we're all very familiar with and have studied before. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive uh, receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not hear, when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he is, or where he was, and when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. But some of the scribes who were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, uh, Why does this man speak blasphemes like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go, go your way to your house. And immediately he rose up, took up his bed, and went out of the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we, we never saw anything like this. So that's a, a story I would think that we're all very familiar with and have all studied. So now we're going to go ahead and turn to page 17, and we're going to look at the questions that are there. And now I... I Hope to get some participation from you guys and calling out some answers here. So first, who are the people that are mentioned in the story? Jesus, obviously. The crowd. The paralytic. The scribes. And the four friends. And those are the people. So those are things that we would look at. And that's a question that goes to point you towards observations. And so those are things that we had observed very plainly, you know, the who, who was there. Uh, so in the story, where was Jesus at the time? In a house in, in Capernaum. And so those are, those are things that we write those down in observation and that will later we'd go back and we would interpret what that meant. So, you know, if I write down Capernaum as an observation, 
what kind of things am I going to look for in interpretation? Where it is, if I could find a map and look it up on a map, see where Capernaum is. I can look up and see other things that were happening in Capernaum at that time, understand a little bit about the culture that way, and just help to get a deeper meaning out of, you know, what is Capernaum? It's just another city in our minds. We didn't live there. We haven't necessarily traveled there or been through there. So it's it's hard to relate to it unless you really get to know it. And so that's the reason we look at that and observe it and then later interpret and really dig into it and understand it further. And then what happened, you know, relate the whole story in your own words. Um, and it's pretty straightforward, the story. I'm not going to make you do that all out here. Uh, what are some physical problems of the paralytic? He is, he is bedridden. He is paralyzed. Anything else? Maybe. It's, again, with observation, the key is to just look straight. What are the facts in the text and not to come up with too much on our own? We don't want to kind of interject our own thoughts into it. And it's easy to look at the scene and imagine we're there and say, well, let's see, he, he was probably, um, you know, he was really weak or anything else, but we don't know that. He might have been really strong. He was just paralyzed, he, but he could have had strengths in ways that we don't know. So we don't, there are things that the Bible doesn't tell us, so we shouldn't try to give opinion or come up with other things to read more into it. Absolutely. And so how difficult would it be for him to get to Jesus? On his own, impossible. He's paralytic. So it had to be a pretty hard thing for him to get there. You know, physically, it might not have been hard for him at all. Maybe other people just saw him and said, hey, let us help you. It's hard to say. So what kind of men were the four men? We don't know who they were. They're just four guys that helped him out. We don't know if he paid them to help or if they offered to help or they just saw him wanted to help. They, we know that they're faithful because the scripture says that they were faithful. Uh, we, could inter- we could assume that they were strong and dedicated to some extent because to lift up a paralytic onto a roof and lower him down, I mean, They had to have some bit of strength and dedication to go through that. But beyond that, there's really not much that we could assume about that. And then why were they so persistent? Their faith. Definitely their faith that they had a desire to hear Jesus and they had a strong faith. We know both those things from what the text says. So whose faith was Jesus talking about at the moment in when he's when he's talking about in this? Whose faith was he talking about? All right, the four men and the paralytic. And then why did Jesus say, son, your sins are forgiven? So again, that's where we would look at the text and as an observation, 
we want to look kind of what is it the text is saying and so why did he say it because of their faith because he said that that you know your sins are forgiven forgiven because of your faith and through that it opens up the opportunity also to glorify god and to show his deity that he's setting the setting the path there knowing that what's going to happen saying your sins are forgiven knowing that that's going to stir the hearts of those who are against him the scribes that are there and continue that story. And then when did Jesus answer, uh, begin to answer their questions? It says immediately. Yeah. As soon as he sensed it, immediately he sensed it and answered them. And if we read verses 9 through 11, so we'll go ahead and read that again. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go your way to your house. Which is easier, and why? So which of those is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to tell him to take up his bed and walk? And why would that be easier? Well, for those looking, it's it's like Nate said. It's it's really easy to say your sins are forgiven, because there's no way to prove that they aren't. It's easy to say, okay, your sins are forgiven, great, and everybody looks around, and goes, yeah, sure, whatever. But if I say, you know, if God says to him, and he did. You know, take up your bed and walk and, and go, and they sit and watch this paralytic stand up and walk out, that's that's going to make some effect in that room. That's going to get everybody focused on what's going on, and obviously it's going to show he is Christ. He is God in, incarnate. He can do what he says and heal people. So what are the parallels between sin and paralysis? Exactly. Both those things are, they affect our walk. They, they paralyze us in our walk, whether it be physically or spiritually. And we're crippled in sin and we we're crippled in a paralytic condition. They're, they both have very, very similar parallels. And so someone who is paralyzed is really like what? How could you compare somebody that's paralyzed? What would be a parallel for that for somebody else? which would apply to us. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's one who's, we're bound to sin, that we're tied to it, just like a, a paralytic is, is tied to his para- paralysis. There's no way to get away from it other than through Christ, and we're tied to our sin. There's no way we can... Get away from our sinful nature. It's something that we're born into through the sin that's happened in the fall. And the only way to, to break, that bind, break that bind is through Christ. So what does Christ do for sinners? In this text, obviously, he forgives sin of the faithful. And he frees them from being crippled from their ailment.
And so what is the main point of the text? What should we, what are the kinds of things we should get out of that? Yeah, through intercession as well. And that, you know, those that are crippled by sin, they can be forgiven and they can be healed. It doesn't matter how drastic the condition is. You know, somebody that's, we don't know if he was a quadriplegic, a paraplegic. We don't know to what extent he is par- paralyzed. But he could have been completely paralyzed and couldn't move anything but his head. And some of us are like that in our sin, that we're so bound up in our sin that we can hardly breathe, but it doesn't matter how much sin or how bad our sin is, it can all be forgiven and all taken away through Christ. And then it says, do you have the faith to carry someone spiritually paralyzed to Christ? And that's one that we all have to kind of ask ourselves that, do I have that faith? Do I, could I carry someone spiritually paralyzed to Christ? Uh, do I have the tools to be able to pull out my sword and, and you know, fight off the evil and and show them the way to get to Christ, to free them from their bi- from their their bindings. Uh, hopefully, we all do. Uh, if we don't, then it's something that we should continue to work on to get there. That's what we're all called to do. The next one, you know, some specific ways you might do that. There's lots of ways that we can work to help. Excuse me. Someone that's spiritually paralyzed, um, we can pray for them. Absolutely, and be ready for it, because God will put that person on your path. You will find them. It's one thing God is. One of many things that God is is faithful to to give us opportunities to witness and to serve and just to work in is his service. Um, it's good to find specific scriptures and that we can use to show people God and how he forgives and you know, learn the Romans road and understand how to apply that. Um, what are some obstacles that you might experience in bringing people to Christ? And, yeah, people. A lot of people they don't want to hear it. They you want you tell them and they're like, forget it. You're crazy. It's like if that's the case, then they don't have to listen. But we we're still called to go out and witness. And one of the other obstacles that we run into, I know I suffer from this. I think we probably all do to some extent, is that personal fear of just going up to somebody and talking to them, telling them about God. It's something that's hard to do. It's it's not natural in our nature to want to go and do that it's something that we work at and that we need to pray and ask for god's support in that and he gives us strength to do it it's hard to go out and witness to people it's it's hard to get that rejection so consistently
It's, it's true. It's absolutely so true. Yeah. Yeah, art we're not we're not called to convince people that the Bible's true. We're not called to convince people to be Christians. We're called to share the message, pray for those people and let God do the work. And it's it's something that is only he can do and you know idolatry is so strong in in all of us. It's a strong sin that we all have something that you know wants to be our idol whether it's money or even our jobs or our car or whatever that people want to just kind of focus their attention on football or whatever (laughs) exactly whatever our our particular like idol is it's so hard to just let those things go and and focus on god and we can't do it ourselves we we really can't it's one of those things that we have to pray and ask god to work in us because our sinful nature is Always there. Always got to be praying to get that sin out of our lives and avoid those temptations that are out there. So what are some specific ways that you could show care for people that are sinners? What's that, Marlon? Yeah? And even if we don't know them, we see people, I, you see somebody that you see them in their sin on the street and you don't even know who they are, we can pray for them. Uh, you see, you're driving down the street and you, know, some, you hear an ambulance, and a lot of us you hear an ambulance or see a you know, fire truck going somewhere, we pray that those people are going to be okay. Pray that that situation is taken care of and that God's hand is in it. And anytime we see those people... Just praying for them is probably the first and most important thing that we can do above anything else. And so what are some other ways? Say, you know, we meet that person, we know them. How can, how can we be somebody showing care for sinners? Yeah, people... People that are living in sin are rarely going to just let that sin go and seek out that help. So it's our job when we see it to to try to get to know those people. And we're it's easy for us to live kind of within the church and hang out with each other and nobody else and kind of live in our own little bubble of Christianity and kind of just pretend the outside world doesn't exist because it's pretty bad out there. Some days a lot worse than others. And that's exactly what it is. That it's, people aren't just stopping and looking for you, but when you hear, that's them just very casually trying to say, you know, I need help. They know it. They've felt that they need help. God's working in them, but they don't know where to go or how to do it. And so just being there for them. Yeah, 
We're not called to judge those of the world. That's, that's not on us. It's our job to judge each other in the church and each other in Christ. But those of the outside world, we're here to redeem them and help bring them to Christ, who's our, our great redeemer, to save us all. We want to bring them back into, into the church, get them saved. Um, we can do service at church, you know, just helping out wherever we can. Do volunteer work out in the community. Do outreach. Do, you know, local mission work. Do long-term mission work. Whatever God puts on your heart and calls you, you know, just helping in the community. I I know somebody was doing uh, what they called a muffin ministry. They had moved up to Santa Ana, and they started what was a muffin ministry. And so every weekend they'd bake a bunch of muffins and go out and give them to homeless. Share the gospel with them. And they brought tons of people to Christ through it, that people heard the gospel talking to them. I mean, you know, somebody living on the street getting a free muffin on the weekend, it's not a bad thing. That's great. And the fact that it isn't highly publicized makes it, you know, all the more respectable because you know that he's doing it for the right reasons. And we can all serve in one way or another. And it's, we're not all called to do, you know, going downtown and ministering every weekend or anything. It's, we're all called to share the gospel. When the opportunity comes to us, we should try to seek out those opportunities when we can. And we should all, you know, take our part in serving in one way or another for, for the kingdom of God. That's what we're here for. So... We all have our specific talents and abilities, and it's something we should all look to to pray for kind of direction from the Holy Spirit of where we should be going and what we should be doing. Yeah, it's real easy to just go, I don't know, I don't feel anything. I, I don't want to serve today. There's a football game on. Or, it's easy. And then, let's see, the last question on here. How can you work with others, uh, bringing people to Christ? And obviously, you know, through prayer is going to be the biggest one. And it's a lot of the same things as ways we can show care for people that are sinners. There's just endless ways we can do it. Financial support, missions, prayer, community outreach. Uh, If you have something that's on your heart that 
you think, oh, we should be doing whatever kind of outreach you can think of, then if you feel that, we should be doing that, and you should be the one heading it up. So it's something that if you know, talk to other people in the church, get get us you know, group together, and we'll do whatever those things are. And it's it's hard to hard to do that sometimes, you know, just to step out and you know, take that first step forward. But when you do, the rewards are just huge. So. Yeah, and just in our relationships, you know, with non-Christians, when we're, you know, I'm sure many of us, probably all of us have some friends that are non-Christian, and, you know, we can be such a beacon of light to them. And, you know, people living in darkness, they see how you live, and they see how you act. And if you're living, you know, as much of a good Christian life as you can, and you're praying, and you're trying to keep yourself focused, that people see that, and they see that, wow, he, that person doesn't cuss, or that person doesn't go drink all the time or they don't smoke or whatever, you know, whatever crutch that somebody may have, anything that we can do to be that beacon of light for anybody is something that's going to help them see that that person's living differently. I can see they're happy. They're just a joyful person. They just love everybody. And things like that that people will look at you and go, What is wrong with you? That's a way to start a conversation. And I you know, an example that happened to me of that. I was you know, I'm a chef, as I think just about everybody here knows, and I was working at a place and I got a delivery of um pork loin. It's what I ordered, it's what I got. It was actually no, it was ground pork. So a case of ground pork cost me about eighteen dollars. Pretty cheap. And then the sticker on it or the sticker on it, that's what I had ordered, was the ground pork. But what I actually got was a box about the same size, and it was actually lobster tails. So my, I got about a $300 case of lobster for $18 of ground pork sticker that they had put on it at the place that sold it. And I told the delivery driver, it's like, I'd love to keep this, but you know, I, I can't do that. And you take it back, and send me ground pork. And my sales rep heard about it and came back, so I can't believe you sent that back. Thank you so much. And I, you know, Nobody, most people would never do that, and most people probably wouldn't. But all of us, if we're living that life of trying to be an example to others, we're that beacon of light, and people see that and go, wow, that's, that's really good. Yeah, because I believe in Christ. I know that that would be wrong to do.
Absolutely. Okay, well, that is all I have for today. And next week, we're going to get in a, a bit deeper. We're, next week, we're going to start looking at uh, outlines. So in an outline, we're going to have, you know, come up with a theme for a, a particular, you know, scripture that we're going to focus on to study. You'll want to come up with a theme and then break it up into different parts, different sections that have main ideas of each little grouping. And then from that, we'll talk about how you would do the observation, interpretation, the application, and then afterwards we're going to do what they call charting and explain kind of what that charting is and how we can put that to use for ourselves. So anybody have any questions so far? Very good. I'll go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, once again for the opportunity to, to teach about your word and ways to study and how to just get deeper meaning out of all the information that you gave us. There's it's such a finite book that is infinite knowledge in it. It just continues to teach us day after day, year after year, throughout our entire lifetime. We can just keep digging deeper and deeper. If we just apply ourselves and, and study, there's so much wisdom there that we can apply to our lives. And I just pray that all of us take the opportunity to do that and to apply that so much to our lives that we can all just live a life focused more on you and be molded more in your, in your likeness. I thank you for this time and I ask that you bless all of us here and that you just be with all of those that are in Cambodia, especially with Bill and Eric and all the situation over there with all of them. Just be, be there with them and amongst them and just make an amazing work happen while they're there. In the name of our Lord Jesus, amen.